Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hey guys, what's up? This is Jesse Kramer with the Best Interest Podcast. This is episode 40 of the podcast. And uh, let's see, we're recording on September 8th, Thursday, 2022. I am exactly eight days away from my wedding. So that's uh, pretty exciting news. And that's dominating a little bit of my mental space right now. But I do have some exciting things to talk about today. And uh, as I alluded to last episode, something I'm going to start doing is shedding some light, giving some thoughts, adding some color to some of the articles that I write over at the blog, which is bestinterest.blog. So we're going to start today with uh, some thoughts on the student loan forgiveness thing, because that's something that's been in the news a lot. A lot of people are talking about it. Some people have been asking me about it, and I hold a couple thoughts there. So the first one is that the student loan debt, uh, national student loan debt here in the USA, it's a big problem. You know, as an example, as an illustrative example, housing debt was $1.3 trillion in 2007, and student loan debt is currently over $1.7 trillion. Now, that's not a perfect comparison because with the housing debt back at the great financial crisis, essentially Wall Street, you can think of it as that they were selling insurance on, on the housing debt. And when um, some of that debt wasn't repaid, those insurance policies were paid out en masse, and that's what caused some of the banks to fail and eventually got close to the entire financial system failing, was that those banks were writing insurance policies against housing debt, and uh, those weren't wise insurance policies that they wrote. Okay. So now, is anything like that going on with student loan debt? Not that I know of. But uh, it's, it's an illustrative problem, just the size of the debt that we're talking about here. You know, everybody, not everybody, but lots of people own homes and lots of people have mortgages on those homes and student debt is a bigger problem or a bigger debt than, than that. So I'm pointing that out only because I do think something on some sort of policy level should be done about student debt. But the question really is what what should be done because I also believe that forgiving loan principle is not the solution. Uh, I, I liken it to morphine for a bullet wound. It helps dull the pain and that's fine, but the real problem is still very much there, very apparent. We're still bleeding, uh, infection and death aren't necessarily an if but a when. And, you know, getting back to the real problem, not the metaphor, I mean, colleges are still raising prices and we still have teenagers who are borrowing $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 to meet those prices. So that's really the wound. That's what needs to be addressed. I'm, I was glad to see a few other writers talking about that this week, where until colleges are no longer uh, incentivized to raise their prices so much because they know that their students have access to essentially free debt, I mean, essentially the colleges don't have to pay any cost of that. And when a when a student, uh, a loanee, eventually starts to fail on their uh, debt payments, when they can no longer make their payments, the college doesn't have to pay any price for that. They got their money. This is the college speaking now, right? The college got their money. They got their tuition money. They gave the student the degree. And then the college is no longer involved in the whole debt repayment process once the student is gone. 
And because colleges don't really have any skin in the game, they are they really have nothing holding them back from raising their prices because they know that students will go out and get debt, will, will get a loan to help meet those prices. So getting back to my main point, forgiving loan principal as as President Biden's current uh, plan suggests he's going to do, forgiving $10,000 to $20,000 of loan principal doesn't really solve the problem. It's just uh, morphine for a bullet wound. Uh, if you want to read some more interesting stuff on that, I've got a few links on the blog. Uh, just go back a few articles and you'll see my post about student loans. So some excellent writing from some friends of the blog, including uh, some names you might recognize. Jack Rains, Nick Majuli, Katie Gotti Tassin, Scott Galloway, and some stuff from yours truly as well. Pass out of three, wake up at ten, go out to eat, then do it again. Man, I love college. Okay, next topic. Gardeners and diners. Gardeners and diners. Now, it's a funny metaphor for uh a different non-food related problem. So I've been working now uh, in my job at a wealth management financial planning firm for eight months. And one of my favorite conversations to have with someone uh, is explaining to a potential client or someone who's reached out to me why they might not be a good fit for our firm. You know, it's it's not me, it's not you, it's, it's kind of both of us. Um, sometimes it's an awkward conversation, but honestly, most of the time it's just very transparent. And it's usually welcomed in earnest because I'm being, like I said, transparent. And I'm, I'm telling someone, hey, here's what it sounds like you need. Here's what I do. And here's what my firm does. It doesn't really seem like what you need is a good fit for what we provide. So I might refer them to another planner who's better equipped or differently equipped. Or I might just say, hey, you don't really need any professional help. You just need to start a budget, read a few of these books, and kind of let me know when you're ready for the next step. And it might frustrate some uh, advisors out there, but the, the simple fact is that not everyone needs professional financial help. And I, I use the following analogy to help explain to some of these prospective clients why they might not need help. And, and it's a food analogy, right? Everybody gets food. Everybody relates to food. We all eat a little bit differently. Now, some people, they never cook. They, maybe they're bad at it, right? They burn burgers, they, they overcook eggs. The whole cooking endeavor is either too time-consuming or, or too laborious from, from prep to clean up. So they prefer to dine out as much as possible. So that's group one, they dine out a lot. Other people enjoy cooking, or at least somewhat, and, and so they have a balance between cooking at home and dining out. So they're going to the grocery store, they're getting some things for a meal, they prep their food. They probably save a good amount of money compared to group one who's always dining out, but it also takes a little bit more time. It takes a little bit of expertise. And then on the other end of the spectrum, on the far end of the spectrum, there are some people who are completely self-sufficient. Maybe they grow such an immaculate garden that they barely need to grocery shop at all, at least when it comes to food. Um, you know, I grew up around people who had farm animals, you know, some chickens that lay eggs, uh, a cow that makes some milk. And they are largely self-sufficient when it comes to food, right? They, they have a homestead, they have a farmstead, and they're basically doing everything themselves. So most of us fall somewhere on the spectrum. But one important point is that we probably aren't stagnant on that spectrum. For example, Americans um, 
they they cook for themselves, especially as young adults, only spending about 5% of their total food and beverage budget away from home. But that number jumps to over 20% in our 30s and 40s. In other words, of every dollar we spend on food, about 20% of them, 20% of those dollars are spent dining out when we're in our 30s and 40s. So as our life changes, so does our diet. And financial planning and wealth management, they work the same way. Because there are some people out there, I call them DIY investors, they are like the gardeners in our analogy. Um, Their shelves are full of personal finance books. They develop and enact their own investing systems. They self-study a lot for retirement planning, tax efficiency, estate planning. These people are uh, largely financial nerds, and and some of them aren't even really that financial nerds. They just, they found five or six simple things that they adhere to. They, they keep it pretty simple and they are completely self-sufficient and, and they go far on that self-sufficiency. Are they taking advantage of every little nook and cranny in the tax code? Probably not, but they're, they're doing something that's good enough for them, right? They're using maybe the 80-20 rule where they, they capture 80% of the beneficial uh, uh, advantages available to them. Now, financial planning clients, they are people who they dine out, so to speak, much more than the gardeners. They might know how to cook, but they prefer not to. They expect expertise, though. That's an important point, just as you would from a gourmet chef. If they're paying extra for a, for a service, they expect some expertise. Um, or perhaps they're someone who's kind of 50-50 between cooking at home and in the restaurant. They want some help with some stuff, but not with all of it. And when you dine out, absolutely, there is a fee for those professional services. And, and we'll come back to that in a second, actually. We'll come back to those fees. But like the food analogy, there's a spectrum here. Most people that I speak with, they fall into one of three camps. Uh, camp number one is that they've always been a gardener, but they aren't quite sure they want to stay a gardener forever. In other words, they have always done all of their finances their own. They, they budget with QuickBooks. They have a, a portfolio of index funds that they monitor. And they're happy to do it. They've always been happy to do it. But maybe in retirement, they say to themselves, do I really want to upkeep this in retirement or do I want to outsource some of this work? Group two that I talk to a lot is somewhere in the middle. They've always been 50-50. They've always maybe kept an eye on their accounts. They've always had an idea of what they spend. But as their lives get more complex, which might involve more children, uh, simply more money, as those lives get more complex, the idea of cooking or of doing it themselves becomes a little bit more complicated, a little bit easier to screw up, and therefore it makes more sense for them to start leaning on professional help. The final group are, as the metaphor goes, these are people who are starving. That is, they've never considered the world of personal finance and investing whatsoever. They don't even really understand what food and investing are. Now, some of those starvers, they just need the simplest directions, right? Here's a grocery list, boil that water, stick these seeds in the dirt. In financial terms, it's stuff like create a budget, learn some investing basics, follow the financial order of operations, here's one or two books to go off and read. They probably don't need professional help yet, right? They just need to learn the simplest basics of how to feed themselves. Uh, But other folks, even the most self-sufficient, some of them do decide to dine out to make their lives a little bit easier. Now, that might only mean that they quote-unquote dine out once a year. They might only need an hourly financial planner. Uh, 
three, four hours of financial planning help once a year for a one-time fee, that's totally okay. Other people, they want to hang up the spade altogether. In other words, the complexity of their situation and the downside risk if they screw it up leads them to seek out comprehensive wealth management, uh, an ever-evolving financial plan, someone to pick up the phone to for any sort of financial question in their life. But before going on, I mean, what exactly is comprehensive wealth management? Or, or put a what another way, how can you tell if you're going to a worthwhile restaurant? If you're paying someone to cook your dinner, I would hope that they're better at cooking than you. But the problem with financial services, though, is that there isn't really a, a Yelp or a food review to help you see ratings like you would with a restaurant. So I put together a list of 12 questions that you should bring with you to ask a financial advisor before you even think about working with them. And this list was inspired by Jason Swig's version of 19 questions that he published in the Wall Street Journal. When you use these lists, if you sit down with one of these lists with a potential advisor that you're thinking about working with, some of the answers you hear will probably shock you. So they're, they're good lists. And my 12th question and the one I want to talk about today is you should always ask a potential advisor or planner, hey, what is your value proposition? In other words, why is your cost worth it? What am I getting for the money that I'm spending? And it's such an important question because if your advisor, if they only invest your money, that's a bad value proposition because the average advisor provides average returns. That's just math. I'm going to say that again. The average advisor provides average returns. It's simply the way the math works. And you, as an individual, you can seek out average investment returns on your own through low-cost indexing, low-cost index funds, right? So it probably doesn't make sense for you to pay someone money if you're only getting average returns back because you can do that for close to free. So a worthwhile advisor is someone who's going to provide significant value to you through things like financial planning, actually understanding all the different aspects of your finances from, from insurance to loans, debt, credit, mortgages, uh, investing, obviously, different types of investing accounts, tax planning, that kind of stuff. Retirement planning, goals-based investing, withdrawal strategies in retirement. Eventually, you have to start pulling on your money. Um, systematic rebalancing, that is something you can probably do on your own, but a good advisor will do it for you. Tax-efficient strategies for both investing and withdrawing. Asset allocation, behavioral coaching, that's a huge one, something that I love talking about, behavioral coaching. The idea of you could go out and invest in, say, a 70-30 portfolio on your own. And as long as you can stick with that portfolio through thick and thin, you're going to be fine. But a lot of people that I work with, they need someone to basically hold their hand, especially when the market's down like it is right now, to, to help them stay the course. Um, and that kind of another name for that is, is stress reduction or just financial education. Um, these are all things that a, a financial advisor can do to make their fee worthwhile. And you, as a customer, as a client, you as the one who's paying that bill, you need to demand that you get some, if not all, of those services when you pay for professional financial help. So the important goal, as I would put it, is that your advisor provides value in return for the fees that you pay. Investment management isn't enough. Some of those services directly save you money, others save you time, and some simply reduce your stress levels because you don't really want to pay 50 bucks for just an average steak and some soggy french fries. 
You might be a gardener in your life. You might be a ramen cooker. You might stay that way for the rest of your life or your circumstances might change. But if you do decide to seek out professional financial planning, ask yourself, what kind of help do I need? What responsibilities do I want to keep doing myself? And am I getting my money's worth on this quote-unquote meal? In an octopus's garden in the shade He'd let us in Next up, we got a juicy one. So this was a question that got sent in by uh, Jim. Jim is a reader of the blog, and I'm going to use this as a quick time to shout out, guys. I hope you consider sending me your questions. You can send them uh, via email to jesse at bestinterest.blog. Uh, text is fine. You can you can write your questions out, but it's even cooler if you're able to send me your questions as an audio file and I will uh, edit that audio file here into the podcast. Now, Jim wrote, I've maxed out my Roth IRA every year since 2020 by putting in the full $6,000 at the beginning of January. I just buy VTSAX, and we'll talk about what that is. I just buy VTSAX with it all. As I write this email, those shares of VTSAX are at $18,100. I've gained $100 over three years. I would have been better off sticking that money in a bank account, gaining 1% per year. Tell me I didn't make a big investing mistake. Jim. So uh, before getting into the question or any of the details, just so you know, VTSAX, that's Vanguard's total stock market index fund. Uh, It's an efficient, low-cost, diversified method of getting exposure to the entire stock market. So when, when Jim says VTSAX, he's investing in the stock market stocks. Okay. Now, thanks for the question, Jim. That's an awesome question. You're not the only person asking questions like that in 2022 because of the way the market has been behaving. So let's get into some answers. So first, I want to talk about results-oriented thinking. We need to know a little bit more about Jim based on his age, his goals, his timelines, his income. Based on Jim's personal finances, his personal circumstances, was this the correct investment approach? Has he been investing correctly, 100% in stocks? Now, I know from a little bit of background, I I know who Jim is. He's youngish. Uh, he's a little bit younger than me, and I'm 32. So I'm inclined to say that 100% stocks was at least reasonable for Jim, okay? And, and we'll get into a few of those details later as to why. But one thing I want to avoid saying is this idea of if an investment goes up, it was smart, and if an investment goes down, it was dumb. That's something called results-oriented thinking, and it's one of the hallmarks of irrational investing. It's something I've written about and railed against a few times here on The Best Interest. And if you want some more reading about results-oriented thinking, there are some links on the blog in this, this article that I'm reading from. So let's say Jim is 25 years old. Um, he's got about 34 years before he turns 59, And 59 and a half, that's the age at which he can withdraw the profits from this Roth IRA. So based on that, based on that 34-year timeline, to me, a 100% stock allocation is perfectly reasonable. Now, whether it went up or down over the past three years, that's a separate question from whether his allocation was reasonable in the first place. It was reasonable in the first place. But importantly, A three-year timeline, because it has been three years, it's actually been a little bit less than three years since Jim's initial investment in January 2020, 
A three-year timeline is too short for worry. It's too short for celebration. It's too short for any other emotion related to the performance of Jim's portfolio. You might know this from, from reading my articles. You might just know this in general. But stock market money should have somewhere between an 8 to 10 year plus timeline associated with it. So those are points number one and two I would want to make to Jim. Um, and by the way, we'll get into that eight year plus timeline in, in, a, in, a, in a minute or two. Uh, Jim, you can't judge this investment based solely on performance, especially over such a short timeline. Uh, we know that U.S. stocks have, on average, returned 7% per year, and that accounts for both dividend reinvestment, but it also accounts for inflation. So that's a 7% real return per year over the last 100 years or so. Now, Jim's performance has underperformed that average over the past three years. But since we are all students of the stock market here, we know that stocks are volatile, and we know that they rarely nail that 7% per year on the head. Some years they're up at 20, other years they're down 10. Stocks are volatile around that average, and, and we shouldn't expect the average in any single year. We shouldn't expect the average even over a three-year period. Uh, but before I get into that, I want to talk about something, uh, total return. I want to talk about total return because I think Jim is overlooking dividends. Now, we've discussed this on The Best Interest before. Stocks are businesses. That's what stocks are. They represent a business. And stockholders are business owners. If you own a share of Ford, you literally own Ford, the business. So when those businesses profit, stockholders can receive a share of the profits via dividends. And Jim should have been receiving those dividends over the past few years because he owns an index fund that is full of stocks. Now, if Jim is only looking at the price appreciation of his investment, um, he's not going to see those dividends. So he needs to look at the total investment return. It combines both price appreciation and uh, dividends or other forms of income. So sure enough, by my math, and this is just looking at the uh, history of VTSAX over the last few years, Jim has received about $557 in dividend payments in the, since, since January 2020. Now, it's not huge, $557 uh, compared to a $18,000 total investment, but it's not bad. And FYI, Jim, that cash might be sitting in your Roth IRA uh, waiting for you to reinvest it, which you probably should think about. When we account for those dividends in Jim's math, and so what I mean there is it's not that Jim had a $100 return. He actually has a $657 return. We can calculate Jim's internal rate of return, or IRR, in his portfolio, and it comes out to 2.3% per year. So it's not terrific. It's not 7% per year. It's not 10% per year, but it's also not zero. It's also not negative. And it's probably better than Jim had assumed. So the lesson there, dividends matter. Let's get into some long-term investing fundamentals. Since Jim is investing in his Roth IRA, we know that retirement is one of his savings goals, right? A Roth account is a retirement account. So that's a long-term goal, 34 plus years as we went over before. And that requires a long-term mindset. Remember, when in doubt, zoom out. Long-term investing involves many investments over many years. This is called dollar cost averaging, right? So a personal example of dollar cost averaging is that I've invested $500 a month into my Roth IRA every single month for the past five plus years now. Uh, 
So whether the market was up or down or sideways, I'm still investing the same $500 every month into my Roth IRA, and I buy uh, an index fund pretty similar to what Jim is buying. So why do I dollar cost average, or why should anyone dollar cost average? Well, first off, it's logistically easy to automate, right? You just kind of set it and forget it. An automatic withdrawal from your bank, an automatic purchase of the investments themselves. And, and because it's so easy, that means that it's psychologically easy. You don't really have to stress about it. You can really just set it and forget it. And if you understand the underlying data, you really don't worry that much about your investment performance uh, because dollar cost averaging in the past, it works well enough for most people to hit their financial goals over multiple decades. They don't have to perfectly time the market. They don't have to worry about when the market's up or when it's down. DCA, dollar cost averaging, is good enough, okay? It's not perfect, but it's good enough. And, and we'll talk about that more because history tells us that dollar cost averaging, like all stock investing, it doesn't work perfectly, especially over short time periods. So I wish I could show you guys these charts, but instead I'm going to suggest that you go to the blog and you look at these charts with your own eyes in person. I have uh, one chart showing, let's see, all these charts show data, S&P 500 stock data from 1950 to today. And all of these charts are showing someone who would have dollar cost averaged over that time period. Now, the first chart shows three-year portfolio performances, which is pretty similar to uh, what Jim is, is talking about here today. The second chart shows 10-year portfolio performances, and then the final chart shows 20-year portfolio performances. And the reason why I like looking at this historical data is because it gives us context. It allows us to set our expectations. And if we look at the three-year data, which is most similar to what Jim is going through right now, we see many periods of negative performance. Jim, Jim was positive, right? Jim had 2.3% positive performance per year. But we see periods on here of, let's see, not only minus 5, minus 10, but minus 18, almost minus 30 twice. Uh, it looks like in the, in the mid-70s, there's a crash. I think it was 73, 74, there was a crash. And then uh, around the dot-com bubble, in, in the year 1999-2000, and then the great financial crisis of 07-08. If Jim had started investing in like 2005 and then done the same whole dollar cost average thing into the stock market, when 2008 hit, when the great financial crisis hit, Jim wouldn't be down 2.3% per year. He'd be down almost 30% per year, okay? His portfolio would have gotten decimated. That is part of stock market investing. If you aren't okay with that, if you can't stomach that, then perhaps a 100% allocation into stocks isn't right for you. But Jim, by the time he's 59 years old, is going to look back at 2022 and it's going to be a little blip on his radar. That's the mindset that we want to have. Now, when we fast forward to the 10-year chart or the 20-year chart, we see many of the peaks and valleys flattening out. The longer we wait, the longer we dollar cost average, the more we revert to the mean and approach average stock performance. It's not perfect. I mean, there have been times in the past where you could have invested for 20 years and had low single-digit returns or maybe even mid-teen returns. It can take quite a long time for the stock market to truly hit that 7% average return. But importantly, Time tends to narrow the range of expected outcomes. 
That's an important investor idea. More time tends to narrow the range of expected outcomes. So Jim's three-year period has a wide range of expected outcomes within which uh, plus 2.3% per year, it's pretty reasonable. The next point I want to talk about, I call it the bigger fish point. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about the hedonic treadmill, which is this idea that from a personal desire point of view, we always want more, more, more. We want bigger stuff, better stuff, faster stuff, stronger stuff, bigger house, faster car, et cetera, et cetera. And in terms of our desire, there will always be a bigger fish. There will always be someone else down the block who has a nicer car, a bigger house, a prettier girlfriend. Not prettier than my girlfriend, but you get the picture. Now, the same idea here goes for investments. By the way, she's not my girlfriend. She's my fiance, and she's soon going to be my wife. That's pretty cool. Um, but the same idea goes for investments. There's always going to be a better investment out there, guys. I mean, it's again, it's just the math, right? There is going to be one stock today on the U.S. stock market that is going to have the best performance of the day. There's going to be one stock that has the best performance this month. There's going to be one asset class that will have the best performance this year. I've got another chart on the blog that I would encourage you to look at, but it might be one that you're familiar with or that you've seen before. It's called a quilt chart. And a quilt chart simply shows uh, year by year how various asset classes uh, have performed. And it stack ranks those asset classes with the best asset at the top of a column, the worst asset of the bottom of the column, row uh, columns rather are year by year so moving left to right we go through time and then each asset class is colored uh, it has its own color and that color is maintained from year to year and the reason why it's called a quilt chart of course is that the chart ends up looking like a patchwork quilt where the best performing asset class one year is usually not going to be the best performing asset class the next year and you end up with these colored patches all over the chart, some high, some low, some left, some right. And the lesson from the quilt chart is that the best thing, the best investment, it changes over time. The quilt chart shows how various asset classes, they ebb and flow on a yearly basis. As investors, it's not your job to find the best investment every day. It's not your job to find the best investment every year. It's really hard to do that it's really hard for professionals to do that. So I'm not sure how you, as, as presumably a more amateur investor, I don't know how you're supposed to do that. But what you do need to do is you need to build a portfolio that meets your goals and preferably with the least risk possible. Now, good enough, a solution that's good enough to meet that goal is quite literally is good enough. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be number one. You don't have to be phenomenal. You just have to be good enough to meet your goals. Now, by the time Jim is 59, will today's investing decisions help him meet his goals with the least risk possible? That's the question that I'm asking, and I think that's the question that Jim should be asking. That's what we should be asking about his situation. And, and from my vantage point, there's nothing wrong with investing $18,000 in a tax-advantaged retirement account 100% into the stock market with a 30-plus year timeline ahead of him. So, Jim, I totally understand your question. I think it's a phenomenal question. I hope this information helped. Uh, thanks for sending the question in. And, and those of you listening, I hope you guys send your questions in too.
Okay, guys, thank you again for tuning in. Again, this is Jesse Kramer with The Best Interest. If you haven't yet, check out the blog, bestinterest.blog. And uh, as a reminder, send me your questions. I would love to answer your questions here. In fact, if you want to send an audio file, I can probably find a way to sneak the actual audio file into the podcast. But if not, just write in. Send me an email, jesse at bestinterest.blog, or DM me on Twitter. Find me on some other social media. That is all good. And uh, thank you again for listening to the Best Interest Podcast.